Hello, and welcome to the Writers and Illustrators of the Future podcast. This is John Goodwin, your host. This podcast is dedicated to the aspiring writer and artist, and will provide inspiration and tips from top professionals in the field. If you've been listening to this podcast or are new to it, I thank you very much. I would also appreciate if you took a moment to follow it on whatever platform you use to listen to your podcasts. Today's guest is Mark Leslie Lefebvre. We originally met when he was heading up Kobo's self-publishing platform, Kobo Writing Life, and then he became, for us, a keynote speaker at a Writers of Future Gala some years back. I've been most familiar with Mark as an author through his Canadian Werewolf series. He's a major spokesperson on, on the benefits of self-publishing, although he's done pretty much everything. Uh, he's been a guest, like I said before, in this podcast. And one thing we're going to do this on this interview that I've not done before is we're going to discuss what could be, I guess, the, the equivalent of motion picture rating system. You, know, you got the G and PG and R and X. There isn't really one for publishing, but how it kind of like might be able to roll out here. Plus, we're going to talk about his World World Series. Welcome back, Mark. Hey, John. It is always great to chat with you. Thanks for having me back. Sure. Now, we were last connecting up back in um, last month in, in February at Superstars in Colorado Springs. Yeah. That was an amazing uh, event. And you're one of the uh, the head honchos there. So how did that come to be? Well, I'm, I'm, I'm more of a presence on the stage. I don't do a lot of the behind the scenes work. <laughs> I do help, but I am, I'm the main MC for, for the event. And that's because Maria Whitaker is an amazing project manager and she's not as comfortable being uh, out mm-hmm. in front. Uh, she's really amazing. Yeah. Uh, she's a great, great writer great, you know, producer and all the great things that she does, but she didn't want to be the soul, <laughs> you know, doing the, the, uh, the stuff on stage. And I'm also an ad, ad hoc kind of guy. I don't need to have a script. I can just show up and she says, hey, make sure you say this. And I don't need to have the script. I can do it. So it was kind of the, it, it was great. Like we team up and we do a lot of the stuff together on stage. But if someone's needed at the last minute, I'm sort of there as a as a, as a quick, you're, the, you're the guy. Yeah. I'm that guy. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. I've been going to the conference since, oh my God, over 10 years now. And so I love it. Wow. Uh, I'd be going every year. I think even if Kevin didn't want me to come, I would force myself on this conference. So <laughs> <laughs> now this was last, this year was my second year and it was, it was so much fun to be able to, uh, to attend and just, there's so many, you know, like-minded spirits there, you know, that just, yeah. They're about the story. They're about, you know, creating that that future reality, you know. So it's – and there's so many people there from Writers of the Future. I know. It's, it's I like a family it. reunion in so many different ways, right? But again, it is. you leave you leave with such passion. Just, just like I can imagine the writers who get to come and hang out with you guys for a week, right, in, mm-hmm. in California. And just all of the great minds they get to learn from. I can, yeah. it's a very similar sort of feeling of, wow, I just, I just drank from the fire hose. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. It's, uh, it is very much like that. And like I said, it was, it's great. And I've met several new people that, you know, have now become, you know, good friends and looking forward. And that's the reason to go back to just to see them again as well. You know, I get to see you, but also I, last year I met uh, Jonathan Mayberry and yeah. that was great. And, you know, you're talking, you know, just obviously all the different organizers. And um, so it's a great thing. But today we're talking with you and about you and about this subject that I've not addressed before. So I'm very anxious to get into that. Yeah. So um, what brought it up was reading your, your um, the last book for myself in your, in your series in the Canadian Werewolf, where you give the, the backstory. Yeah. Um, and it was, it was really enjoyable, but I got to like, so why do you put in, sex scenes versus just romantic and I'm, we'll distinguish too what the difference is on that yeah but like what was the reason for that i remember seeing in what was the one movie where the earth was was uh, there was a big comet coming to earth and it was split it up and they sent the team there to 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 blow up the, Ar- the asteroids so it would, armageddon yeah it was a great and then there was the one scene where they added it was PG up to that point. And then there's a one scene there where um, before they take off in the spaceship, they're, you know, he's laying down on the grass with her and she's topless. And it's like, why did they have to do that? You know, yeah. it was just like, it, it took it from PG now 
to R. And is that, you know, there's somebody had some reason for wanting to do that. Obviously, I didn't understand it. Yeah. It seems like you'd lose audience. But anyway, so now just like you said, when we were preparing for this thing, you don't really have a, a, a standard motion picture rating system no. for books. But do you have any particular feel for like what is a thing that makes something YA versus uh, children's versus um, Christian lit? You know, because there's all these different categories. This violence and sex, how that fits in there. So let's just yeah, uh, I mean address that. Yeah, like you said, there's no there's no writing system like you have in in the uh, motion picture field, right? There's all the different writings right. that doesn't even exist in the book industry. Um, publishers don't even put content warnings on their books when you when you think about it. They don't they don't say, "Hey, there's an open open door sex," <laughs> as opposed yeah, yeah as opposed to closed door, as opposed to no, they don't even hold hands. And 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 I learned I learned a lot about this going to Romance Writers of America conferences over the years and and just going in and, and I remember sitting with a bunch of um, it was like uh, Christian wholesome romance writers and that is romance where they, they just they, they kind of know that they love each other and they don't even hold hands and walk up the stairs fade to black they don't even do that it's very very wholesome and that's and there's and, and there's a thing that is discussed of as heat levels especially in the romance genre. And that is the, well, we're going to assume that they might kiss. <laughs> they're going to kiss. They're going to do more than kiss. Uh, they're going to do some of the stuff off screen. And we're going to talk about the things off screen, like in a Shakespearean play, you know, Rosencrantz and Guildenstern walk in and describe what's going on. And then there's the, we're going to open the curtain up a little bit. Like maybe, you know, the, the, the sort of semi-transparent lace, <laughs> yeah. it's gonna be, you know, full Monty kind of stuff going on. And then of course you start to get into the X rated uh, material and the adult, uh, more adult uh, content and different readers have a different tolerance or preference for that heat level. Now <clears throat> I want to go back just quickly to, to discuss why the heck did we do that in, in Lover's Moon and Lover's Moon. I co-authored with a romance author, Julie Strauss. Mm -hmm. And I normally write, speculative fiction and and while you know i have all kinds of violence and all kinds of other things which you you know it's kind of it's yeah. kind of funny that uh somebody murdering someone else is not seen as as disturbing as as two people sharing their love for one another in an explicit way right exactly um, exactly but i think one of the things so one of the things i had to learn is yeah. the tropes of romance and also in there is a, a brand of werewolf or shifter romance that often has a very very high heat level and 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 it's very explicit <laughs> and i knew that because this was a werewolf series and this was going to be targeted to romance readers because there were the readers who wanted to know the backstory of michael and gail and how they first met sure and and i needed julie's help because there were tropes they had to kiss by a certain point there had to be things happen then you had to have the try fails and stuff like that and it just happened, uh, I mean, naturally, that we introduced uh, a little bit more of a less than hidden uh, interactions between the two characters. And we didn't go full on explicit, but there was definitely touching and things like that that you... Yeah. I mean, it, it was it wasn't a, a penthouse letter, <laughs> but it was, <laughs> you know, it was a heat level that's probably not for younger readers, right? And so... Right. I think that was a that was um that was a marketing decision when you when you think about it because we could have okay. we could have faded but there was also some humor involved. There there's an important conversation that happens while the two of them are are being intimate with one another. There's there's a humorous moment where he demonstrates he's not really an alpha human. <laughs> She's the right. alpha right. in the room. <laughs> and so there, there's a few specific points where we very purposely tried to use sex and humor. Uh, uh, together, uh, even even when when uh, things happen and uh, they injure one another uh, and stuff like that, right? So I, I don't want to be explicit on the podcast, but there there are a couple scenes, but they're not. Um, fortunately, I didn't. Uh, I probably lost more readers over, you know, me taking a stance against uh, racism and uh, <laughs> stuff. <laughs> don't get all political yeah. in your books, right? Like so. <laughs> yeah, that's. We can maybe touch on that too. Just what 
when we get to the part about for the the tips for aspiring writers, you got to realize what you're doing when you take a any type of a stance. You take yeah. you take any anything off of that straight zero line. Yeah. You know, you go anything plus anything negative. You're going to lose somebody. Yeah. You know, oh, for sure. And if you take the zero line, you're going to lose people that just detest the milk toast. You know, <laughs> the people unwilling to take a stance. Yeah, you know, so flavor. <laughs> Yeah. You know, so you give it flavor. I hate that flavor. You make it no flavor. It's like, why don't you have any flavor? So um, you're always, you're guaranteed you're going to lose somebody no matter what you do. And if you have that perspective, then don't bother. That's the total wrong attitude to have. It's like, who's your target audience? And so that's what I wanted to drive this to. But was it, was it um, Lover's Moon, the one where that got a lot more explicit than earlier ones. It was was that the one there where he was he didn't realize until halfway through, like, oh, yeah. that's what was happening. He kept on like they're in the elevator, or whatever is going up the top of of the tower there, and he's like, she said, take it easy, you know, <laughs> and then realizing that yeah. what was going on, yeah. So and then I realized that God, this this is really getting like yeah, a little heavy. Well, that was the wolf nature little, coming out, right? Like that sort of yeah, that, yeah, that yeah. predatory yeah. sort of. <laughs> Exactly. Yeah. Then when you then we said, okay, now I get it. Um, I wasn't, I didn't realize what was coming on until they hit it because I'm, I wasn't, you know, ready for that. Most of them just, yeah, I had the science fiction fantasy, and they're a little bit more on the, on the mystical fantasy, or it's on science fiction. Doesn't usually get a whole lot of no. of um, heated sex. It's just more yeah. science fiction. And I did have, I did actually have a reviewer. I think it was on the audiobook for the previous book in the series where he goes to LA yeah. and he falls in love with a woman. And I have yeah. a scene cause I wanted to, I wanted again to demonstrate his naivety and his non dominant position <laughs> in relationships <laughs> and just how, um, you know, like mild mannered sort of character he was. And, and I did that in a, in a more explicit scene. And I had somebody just lost their mind. Like I was reading this series and that, that the review said, I was reading the series. I loved it. I don't know why you had to do that. And I was like, okay, it was character development. Uh, but then that was, that was a, that was a, a creative decision, not a business decision. Like, like this is romance. We have to market it as romance. And, and I feel, I feel bad that I lost a reader, but I also feel that that was one of the best ways for me to illustrate that character through that scene. Um, yeah. so that was a, it was a weird one, but that, that, it does happen. And, and you run, you run that risk anytime, anytime you add new ingredients to the pizza, pineapple on pizza, love it, hate it. I can't talk to you anymore. <laughs> I can't believe I associate <laughs> with someone who puts pineapple on pizza, that kind of thing. Right. Yeah. So, okay. So this is, um, I think that's something that people need to really, uh, track with and yeah. like you've, and also now the only thing I'm really familiar with reading, but I look at your bibliography and it's it's massive. But the only thing I've read is I think the five of the Canadian werewolf yeah. stories. So you also have who you're trying to create Mark Leslie as. Yes, you know. So um, and you're using just the one name, Mark Leslie. I use Mark Leslie for all of my fiction across all the speculative genres and then the nonfiction about true ghost stories, paranormal explorations. Cause that's very yeah. similar brand. I, I use the full name for the business of writing and publishing. So that's usually the differentiator. Yeah. If it's about the business of writing and publishing, I tack on this name that no one can spell or pronounce. And that's only because <laughs> yeah. you know me as Mark Lefebvre and, and so many people in the industry yeah. know Mark Lefebvre, the business guy. And Mark Leslie right. was a very obviously curated brand where I said, no one's going to be able to spell or pronounce my name. I'm going to write under this name. Um, and, and so that was the Mark Leslie brand. The guy, you know, the skulls on the bookshelf behind yeah. me and the now, now a couple of wolves. <laughs> That's just part of the curation. And I have Barnaby Bones, my skeleton. I still have to take off the St. Patrick's Day hat and the tie I have on for him because, you know, he dresses yeah. up for the occasions. He's out on the front step right now. <laughs> he, he's quite the dandy. Yeah. Okay, good. <laughs> so then on um, so on writing and and creating. So now we're we'll talk about romance because I'm not done that particularly in this. And that's see when I first got into this Canadian werewolf, I was looking at it more as here's a fantasy series, yeah. and you've pushed it more towards romance. It seems mm-hmm. so. That was a business decision because it's a huge it's a huge market romance versus oh no um so. 
the underlying, so from the very first novel, uh, you know, Michael, it, it was meant to be a, a humorous urban fantasy. What would it really yeah. be like living as a wolf? And, and, and that's in sure. the series. That's what I thought. But an underlying subplot that's always been there has been his romantic interest with Gail, the best friend, the ex-girlfriend who shows up and he's still in love with her and she dumped him. And, and there's this tension because he still loves her and he knows because he consented because he has the wolf sense that, that she, mm-hmm. him. but why aren't they together? So I was getting feedback from readers from that very first book that they just wanted more Michael and Gail, want more Michael and Gail, want more Michael and Gail. So I played it up and I caused tension and stress, right? That was very purposeful. Yeah. I wanted to do the thing because, you know, on old TV shows like Moonlighting, uh, or Castle or any of the shows where there's the two, the male, female lead, and there's the romantic interest. It's really aw- like X-Files. It's awesome so long as they don't get together. The minute they get together, right. it becomes boring and, or they jump the shark or they do some some stupid thing. And that's it's been very consistent in, in, in Cheers even, right? Sam and Diane was not interesting unless they were fighting <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> or, or whatever. They couldn't, it couldn't just work out. And so... I did have a lot. But I got. I do have to say. I do have to say. One of my favorite stories that you had me read called Stowaway. I love that character. That was so not romance. It was just so like. Yeah. Wow. How cool is that? Yeah, and that was the kid, the reader, the avid reader, because yeah. she was all of us who just love books so much, right? Yeah. I yeah, yeah. So many book lovers into that, into that. Game. I know that was just like <laughs> such a great story and I'm still waiting for her to come back. Oh, bridge is coming but back. anyway, I, I got to insert that. I got to insert that in there because <laughs> that's some for me is like, that's the big hook. That's got me reading every story you're going to ever publish again well, until you. she comes back. As I, 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 she was meant to be a walk on character. And when she opened her mouth and started talking, she, she did that on her own. I don't know where it, like, it was just, I'm like, oh, she's a book lover. She's a fan of Michael's. Oh, she loves werewolf books. And and so, I mean, Bridge and Michael have long conversations about Michael's love for Gail. So that's still a subplot. It's still an underlying. He's on his way to go be with Gail for a family situation. So, um, yeah, Bridge has got to come back. She's such a great kid. I can't wait to... uh, can't wait for her to show up sometime in the future. I'm really looking forward to writing her again. But um, yeah, well, do, who should I talk to to find out when that's going to happen? Let me know yeah. so I can write that person. As soon as I figure that out. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, I don't, and I don't really plan ahead that far. But what, what happened over time okay. was the, the novel Lover's Moon was supposed to be a short story. I meant to do it as a treat for readers like between books. And then I realized mm-hmm. I couldn't write romance, so I brought in Julie. And as Julie and I started brainstorming, because Julie needed to get into the head of Gail and write from her point of view. And Julie had read all my books uh, in that series so far, so she knew the character, but she had to get into Gail and come up with the background and all this stuff. It we didn't really, and then I thought, oh, it'll be a novella, and then I, and then it became a full length novel, and and so that kind of yeah. got out of hand. But one of the cool things that happened is we did end up, um, the, the next book in the series returns right back to action, adventure, paranormal, urban fantasy, and the love, it takes a backseat again. It's just a, a subplot. I mean, it, it drives okay. the whole thing, but it's sure. about the action. It's about the fight. And, and, and for the first time, I'm really excited. You actually get to see Michael in action as a wolf. Because that's always been behind the curtains, yeah. right? You never really see yeah. him as a wolf. So this is the first time I had a chance to do that, which was kind of fun. That's great. Yeah, it was. It was also good in in that book there that she was a little bit taken off the pedestal and made more of a real person. Oh yeah, for sure. And that's the other important thing. I couldn't. I loved Gail too much. I I, I, yeah. I put her on a pedestal like Michael, so I couldn't write flaws. And Julie wrote a lot of great flaws. Yeah. Right. She yeah. she she made Gail real, and I loved her even more. <laughs> so. Yeah, Michael was way too Canadian. He very much is. Yeah, yeah. I wonder where he gets that from. I don't know. <laughs> let, me know let, let me know that too once you figure that one out. Too. <laughs> All right. So now back to this whole thing yeah. of of like violence and sex. Yeah. And the different levels. Like, like right now, I'm getting ready to interview Brandon Mull, and so he writes YA and children's. Yeah. And um, so I just finished reading the first book in Fable Haven, and now I'm reading. Um, the first book, um, and that was YA, and now I'm reading the first book in the things called Candy Store Wars. Yeah, and that's children, you know, and it's a very definite, different audience that is very targeted to an audience. And sex and romance isn't even anywhere 
involved. There's right. just no concept of it, no addressing of that. You know, the kids love their grandparents. You know, that's, but that's not romance. That's that's family. Yeah, yeah. You know, so um, it's with respect. So there, I think we're pretty much. If you're writing for YA or children, you're just, yeah. there's just no sex. And if there is, um, I'm, I'll step off the uh, my zero line here and just say. You're a dweeb, you know, it's a, it doesn't children and why should just be left alone with yeah. that, you know, and you can start moving into other stuff. It's, it's, it's not appropriate. You know, it's, um, I know that some people have different viewpoints, but there you have. No, I, I agree with you too. And I actually took issue because I, I do read a lot of YA fiction because there's a lot of great stuff in YA fiction and I was shocked. Uh, so John Green, uh, no, uh, fault on our stars beautifully powerful wonderful book and story but he has these two kids it's a ya story but he has these two kids have sex and they're underage see i and, so disagree with and, that and, and and i i found it shocking and i was like you can't have sex in a ya book so apparently i mean i started in the book industry in the early 90s that was a no-no you never if it was ya yeah. you knew it was safe safe meaning that there was maybe there'd be kissing there'd obviously you know people interested in one another stuff like that but this and, and again, it was beautifully written. I, I, I think he's a great writer, but I was shocked to, to see that in a YA book. And, and mm -hmm. I, I, I know young reader, which is an even younger, that's still a taboo, still no, no. In YA, it's kind of blurred, right? And then you have this new adult, which is sort of like a combination of you take YA with a little bit more, and, and, young, and new adult was meant to be a little bit spicier than YA. And then all of a sudden right. it's blended itself back in. So um, I, I guess just the evolution and the way things are changing, but there's no, there's no warnings about that. Um, right. Yeah. See, that's, that's, that, I realized when you get into television, kids can see everything now, you know, yeah. and, um, there's no more gatekeeper on that stuff. Even, even yeah. if you it used to have different things, but now it's just because you've got your networks, but then even if they're following certain standards, all the independents don't have to live by those rules. No. And so, um, and you've got some, some various uh, cables that say, here's the rules on this. And other ones say, okay, look, you can do whatever you want to. You just can't kill somebody on the screen or, or whatever type yeah, thing. And it's yeah. just, it's, it's really opened up so that the level of accepted, again, I'll, I'll use the term degradation is as it continues to lower. Yeah. Um, you know, and I know there's, Maybe I just lost half my audience by talking like this right now. <laughs> well, but, well, uh, but, but there's this, a certain thing. Like I, I, I write adult horror too, right? With a lot of yeah. really nasty things that happen. So I write it, but, but I don't write it, it that's that, for young adults. You don't pretend it's YA. You don't no, pretend it's children. No. It's just straight. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so on that, like, because with Rise of the Future, we have, we say it, it's for middle school on up, mm -hmm. you know, so... We don't necessarily call it YA because it's, it's right. not necessarily YA, but it's we make sure it's edited so there's no right. f bombs in there, yeah. and like there's no there there can be sex, but it's but it's behind the wind, you know, it's behind the scene, yeah. you know. Yeah. You don't we don't get into explicit type stuff because if you got adult stories, you know, and if it's appropriate, you're going to have that in there. Yeah. And aliens, it's like um, there's interesting things that happen, but we always try to make it so it's age appropriate from middle school on up. So yeah, which we makes have sense, that. right? Because it's, it's available yeah. for more people. Yeah. Right. And, and I think it's a sign of, of a good writer who can recognize the market like, mm -hmm. you know, okay. Writers of the future. Here are the rules of what we're looking for and writing a story that actually fits within that, those parameters. I mean, that's a sign of a yeah. professional, I mean, I mean, you, you amateur writers who haven't yet sold a professional sale, but this is your way into the pros. And I love the way you guys make it so easy for authors to experience that. Yeah. So on, when you, when you write a story, whether it's the violence or sex, and you make a decision that I'm going to have this level of violence or this level of sex, yeah. you've also got, you, you must be cognizant of what you're doing and what it's going to do to your readership yes. or, okay, good. So how does that thought process work for you? Well, the, the, the initial thought is always craft. I try not to let the marketing or the business hat get in, in too much in the early stage. So when I'm writing, it's 
is this, what will this do, right? When, when, when I write a story, ultimately, I'm a storyteller around a campfire and I'm gauging the faces of the people and I'm adjusting my storytelling style to keep them pulled in. I want to mm -hmm. make them feel something. Ultimately, my decisions that I make creatively are, is this going to make people feel the way I want them to feel? That's, that's right. king, right? That's the, the primary thing. And then afterwards, and this is often where a developmental editor helps me or bouncing it off a co-author or something. <laughs> we're like, yeah, I mean, even there's times I had some jokes, you know, co-writing with Julie where my joke was just too lowbrow. She's like, no, we're not going there. Right. We we're just not going. We, I mean, the, the, there was the magic urine that I had, which I thought was humorous in a previous book. And she's like, no way is there going to be any your magic urine in this book. I can't put my name on it. Um, so, so sometimes after the creative process, you're like, yeah, I could cut that scene. <laughs> I thought it was funny. Yeah. It's, it did something neat. It really upset my co-author, so that was like. But but again, it wouldn't be my co-author. It might have been my uh, developmental editor who said, "Yeah, I don't think right. you need the, the urine in here, or whatever." Right? Like it's just an example. Right. But I think you've got the creative person who's wanting to be true to the character in the story, and then you then you apply a layer of business <laughs> and go right. Oh, I mean, so for example, one of my favorite movies, Planes, Trains, and Automobiles, would 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 not be an R-rated movie. And you don't think of it as an R-rated movie, but there's a scene where Steve Martin's character drops the F-bomb 17 times in 60 seconds. Definite method of humor, the way they did the scene. But without that scene, it would not be an R-rated movie. <laughs> right. And that's obviously a creative decision that was made. I, I, wow, try to play that on TV. That's a lot of editing. <laughs> yeah, so, yeah. Even today. <laughs> yeah, so then on your... Um because we talked about this before, whether you're a, whether you plan your stories or if you just like, you know, if you're, or if you're just a pantser, yeah. you know, so it would seem like, because you do have an audience you've built at this point now. Yeah. And you have a certain, when I think of Mark Leslie, I have a certain type of persona I think of too, that X-rated doesn't fit that persona to me. Right. Yeah. Okay. That's interesting. You know, yeah. uh, you know, so something would, would be a little bit out of character too. If I read something from you that R, okay, I can, you know, cool. X, I kind of like, oh, I'm just using that because that's something that people are familiar with what that would be. Yeah. I wouldn't see that so much. I wouldn't see you writing a book with a bunch of profanity in it. That's just not, Yeah. I, I don't see you when I, when I talk to you or, or work with you, that's not, that's not a person I see. Right. Personally, you know, yeah. um, so I'm just curious. And when you write a story and I'm, I'm asking this to get your story so that other people can apply it as well yeah. to their own scene, what they need to look of for is they're, is they're building a persona. You're very much out there. You, you've got a podcast, yeah. you've got social media stuff that you do. You've, you do your speaker at, um, at conventions. You're, you're a hired professional speaker that you do. I just see it there. You, <clears throat> you know, you're, a well-paid, you know, speaker at even on, on Zoom events and stuff. So I look at that, it would, it would seem like you would be potentially hurting your persona if you went off and did one thing and then promote yourself as something else, right. unless you're promoting yourself as this very person that has no problem going raunch or something. No, and, and, and that's a great, I'm glad you raised that because I, I very carefully I have curated my persona and my brand. Yeah. And yeah. on my podcast, I even bleep out if somebody says a swear word, I, they sometimes apologize and I go, don't worry. I just, I have a little uh, old fashioned car horn and I go, Aruga, right? Like over top of any swear words they say, because I want to keep, yeah. I want to keep it clean. Uh, yeah. I want to keep, unless the audience is expecting it, then I will launch into some, you know, dark humor, um, adult humor or whatever. Uh, often more for humor because that's that's part of my persona, uh, but that's very very curated. But I also think in my fiction I have characters who use profanity. Um, Michael doesn't, my main character, but he encounters right. thugs who every second word is an f bomb, and that is it's a challenge because I need again. It's one of those things. Like I think of you think of uh, you think of an actor like um, Keanu Reeves, 
and and you know you see pictures of Cano. He's wholesome and he's nice guy, and he never even touches people when he does a photo with him. You can always see his hand; it's always visible, so he's not you know doing anything untoward. <laughs> right, it's right? like that wholesome nature. But he plays some roles, and as an actor, he performs this craft in a way that you know that he's doing this, and 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 I believe in my fiction. And that's where I think we need to talk about that a little bit more is about how do we create a brand for ourselves that, again, I'm a professional. I want people to know that they're going to get something professional out out of me in the industry. So that's very curated. In my fiction and the nonfiction that I write, it's very much on target with what the reader should be expecting. And then sometimes you do end up crossing a line that a reader might not expect, which which does happen. Mm Other times, hopefully, it's obvious in in the marketing of the product and in the branding of the product. Now we don't really have. Now we do have metadata, right? So we have sure. we have BISAC codes, book industry standards, and communications. So I'm going to get all right. nerdy and technical. No, that's totally fine. Kind of, that's what we want. Yeah, yeah it's totally. And this fine. is this is uh, so the BISAC codes come from the BISG Book Industry Study Group. They, uh, I, I'm a member actually, uh, and with my. Mm-hmm. Draft to Digital hat on. I'm a, I'm a member of the BISG committee on behalf of Draft to Digital, so we can always participate in industry standards, which are constantly evolving. So the subject categories is about three thousand six hundred subject categories that books that publishers attach a tag to, called BISAC codes or um, book industry standards yeah. and communications so subject codes. When you think about it, and the challenge is, of course, the publisher can put a book in numerous categories. A bookstore when they get that data, they have to interpret it and go, okay, there's 3,600 things, but my bookstore only has 52 sections. <laughs> They've got to dumb it down, right, right. to the category. So one of the, one of the indicators for, for adult nature level is, is the, the JUV category. So FIC is for fiction. And then within fiction, you have science fiction and fantasy and different kinds of science fiction and fantasy. And like all these breakdowns and uh, urban fantasy and werewolf and shifter and uh, romance, right, uh, as well as is another subcategory of fiction, and they all have their different codes. Mm-hmm. It's like a nine-digit code. But then you have JUV, which is juvenile, and it's all—it's almost a parallel of the adult classifications because you have nonfiction for kids, for younger readers, and then you mm-hmm. have—that's where you have young adult and young readers, and and, and and then you have all the different fiction categories for juvenile uh, as well. So that's one of the ways you classify. The other way you classify is. Um, and, and this is just some, I did a bit of research. So eBound Canada, I'm in Canada, so I'm going to use a lot of Canadian resources because um, I often sure. rely on those, but we all interact together. And so um, you've got the grade age, which which is a classification you can apply to a book. And you can do that mm-hmm. as a self-published author, right? When you publish direct to Amazon, when you publish through draft to digital or Kobo or anything like that, you have the ability to go and put, they're, they're, they're not mandatory, they're optional. But you can say, hey, this is a grade range. Uh, this is a reading age. Uh, but then there's also the interest. So the the, the BISAC is almost like the interest, but also not necessarily the grade level. Um, so you have that. And and, and, the, and the industry recommend recommendations that initially come from BISG, the Book Industry Study Group, are try and keep your reading interest in grade ranges minimal. Don't say, this is for everyone, zero to 99. Like, <laughs> so, you know, even writers of the future think it's probably for people ages 15 and up, right? Or something like that, right. something yeah. roughly. In that. And there's going to be really, and, and I get this all the time at conferences. I have an adult saying, well, my son really likes to read, and he's, or my daughter really likes whatever. And I'm like, yeah, well, okay, this book of mine, you got to be aware. And I, I usually say, you got to be aware there's some stuff in there not appropriate for kids. Here's Here, open it up, check check out this scene. And then the, the parent can make the decision. Because Sally may read at an age 25 level, but Sally is still 14 or 13 or 12. And so I, I want people to be aware of that. But there's no industry like on the book itself, right? So with Scholastic right. books, it's it's often printed like with uh, pu- publishers that specifically publish for juvenile markets. They usually have those indicators. Yeah, with Rise to Future, we've got the Lexile, we've got Scholastic. We have those different levels on there, so yeah. people know this is what you're getting exactly, which is perfect. Um, and so yeah. we have we have those notes, and and I'm just looking. So BookNet Canada, which is a great group, uh, almost like cross between Nielsen BookScan and the BISG <laughs> uh, here <laughs> in Canada. 
they yeah they say ranges should be three maybe four years tops you know like just just narrow it to to a window because again you're going to compensate for you know uh, i was an advanced reader when i was young but at the same age my son was not uh that you know he would be reading probably at a mm -hmm. younger age i'd be reading ahead of my ahead of my stuff right i remember being one of the first kids in my class to be reading chap you know chapter books that didn't have illustrations you know, I was, and I was all proud of myself because <laughs> I'm like, me, I can read more. Um, I've always been a book nerd. But then, then you have, um, there's different code lists in, in Onyx. So mm -hmm. Onyx is um, Online Inf Information Exchange is what it's short for. It's an XML-based programming uh, communication instead of an Excel spreadsheet. Think of it like a, an Excel spreadsheet, but a lot more complicated. It's XML-based, so you can have tags like, like HTML tags and metadata and stuff like that and you can go really detailed like in a book you can have uh, a video of the author mark leslie a link to where someone can download a video of me talking about the book like i can be in the data there's so much richness but they have these yeah. code lists for age range and eating range and then there's a code list 77 which is very specific for canadian because it it, it had well u.s and canadian excluding Quebec. Quebec is one of those weird, and you know how there's states that just all always have their own ways of doing things? And Quebec is like sure. that in Canada. It's just, it's just doing its own thing all the time. It's like Sesame Street. One of these kids is not like the others. Um, <laughs> um, then the school and college grades, and then uh, pre-kindergarten, kindergarten, stuff like that. So th there, there's so many, it's kind of funny that there's so many ways to communicate that. And yet it's, except for what you guys are doing, right? Um, Galaxy is doing this and, and, and Scholastic and young publishers are doing this, right. but there's no requirement to put something on the cover. Um, and, and that, and that leads to an interesting, like, should there be trigger warnings for people? Should there be warnings that this is going to contain foul language? Now I, I help a friend of mine, Sean Costello, who is a horror writer. I help him publish. I, I sort of do the, the logistics. He's the creative talent and I'm, I'm the publishing entity for him because he was a mentor to me and I figure I'll mentor him in the digital realm. And we have one of his books that opens up with a F-bomb and, it, and it's a thriller with bad people doing bad things to one another. <laughs> so it's, it, yeah, it's, yeah. it's, it's a very nasty story. Um, but we, even put a giant disclaimer, like in the book description, we're not required to, we say, please note, this isn't, you know, this has a lot of adult language. <laughs> we don't have to warn people that there's rape and murder in the book. Who cares about that? But the adult language apparently is the thing. Um, and, and so that's a thing we were very, very conscious of. We were even tempted, because I know there's writers that have done this, that have actually, let's take the exact same manuscript and instead of them saying, that word would say fiddly d or whatever right and just change it to completely perfect language for somebody who doesn't like adult language and and i love the idea of being able to do that because then someone can enjoy the story without the pineapple on that pizza right like i'm not, I'm not a fan of this flavor <laughs> or without the hot peppers or, or whatever it is right <laughs> yeah well one thing um another handling that was done Elwin hubbard when he wrote mission earth Mission Earth was definitely X-rated, you know, when it, the original. just in terms of the, the original, the language. And so what, what, what he did, because he's just, it's a satire on planet Earth. Yes. And so planet Earth is X-rated right now. And um, what he did was he added, after it was done, okay, this is what we're going to do. We're going to take this now from being X-rated to being like PG, maybe R type thing. It's definitely adult. But then every piece of foul language gets a bleep and because it was originally written from planet Voltar. Yeah. The invaders that are trying to keep earth from destroying itself. And it's a whole thing of satire on planet earth. So yeah. there's a lot of disgusting things that happen here that his, the, the guy that's coming in to save earth, um, is encounters, you know? And so yeah. what was done is he puts the, the computer, translator um just it, you said this language would burn out my circuits so every time you see this thing every time this this is here i insert a bleep i take it out yeah. so then as you're going through the story every time there's bad foul language it's bleep you know yeah. and that's recorded by that's nancy cartwright who's i love Bart that in the she, she, i just yeah. love that because you get the introduction as the the trans the transponder or the the transcriber 
in the voice yes, of the transcriber yes. explains that. And then as you're listening to the book, you just hear Nancy Cartwright bleep in, in her voice. It's so yes. it's so fantastic. I, I and, and it again that makes it even more of a parody and more humorous, right? Yeah. Yeah. Because it really puts attention on the fact of how <laughs> vile things can get and how and how some people I mean, some people you have their they've got a, a language, you know, vocabulary that goes maybe 250 words. And that's that's it. And so every other word is an expletive because they don't know how to use any other words. So adverb, adjective, really, nouns, verb, everything. <laughs> is exactly. So it's so that's one thing about you know I think that you can also that's what I was just curious about what you know if you write for an audience or whatever it is because that was one thing that that Owen Hubbard definitely had. Because he had a definite audience with when he came back with Battlefield Earth and in the next year coming out with Mission Earth to keep that so that it would there would a, appeal to and he was also at Dynetics was coming out still going there so how do you deal with that stuff so by making it like that it definitely enabled an audience to to track and and read whatever he wrote and not feel like whoa what what just happened here yeah yeah that's true yeah you know so again for yourself. Like, who's your target audience? Oh, that's, uh, well, I mean, it's different for every book, right? I think my, my target audience. I'm, I'm just curious, yeah. yeah. When, I, when I think of my target audience for the Canadian Werewolf series, uh, you know, since we were talking about that earlier, I think the target audience is potentially people who like speculative fiction, uh, enjoy speculative mm -hmm. literature, potentially uh, maybe have some sort of passion or knowledge about comic books and superheroes, particularly Spider-Man, mm -hmm. people who enjoy humor, uh, dark humor, potentially, and, and adventure. And, and so that's sort of a, a demographic that I'm looking at. Uh, they may have enjoyed Jim Butcher's, because um, um, the, the humorous, the Dresden Files, for example, they may enjoy yeah. that kind of urban fantasy, the snark, which, uh, which is kind of part of the expect, expectation in urban fantasy, they may enjoy writings of authors like Kelly Armstrong, um, who's got a, a phenomenal women of the other world series. And so people who, mm -hmm. who, who, who like their, their fiction with a bit of speculative <laughs> and, and I made the mistake yeah. when I first published, when I first published a uh, Canadian werewolf in New York in 2016, I had a different cover. It was a lot more literary because I didn't, think there was enough fantasy in it to satisfy a fantasy reader because i thought well wouldn't it be neat to explore what it'd be like to be a day in the life of a guy who turns into a wolf and you don't need to see him as a wolf you just need to see the human side i think i thought there'd be an interesting character exploration and so i was pitching it to the wrong audience <laughs> because you know like it was just this weird and, I, and i've made that mistake numerous times over my career but i, I re mm -hmm. i rebranded it in 2020 when i started realizing that needed to be a series because that was the stowaway was a short story right. i was commissioned to write not commissioned i was requested to write for an anthology and i thought well what if i put michael on a train and send him up north see what happens if he's going to turn into a wolf before <laughs> before the train gets there like that was the that was the premise i'm like ah let's just write a story and see what happens and that became stowaway. And then it was not a short story. It was like a novella. And that's when right. I went, oh, I think I'm not done with Michael. Um, but right. I've made the mistake of, of creating a product and not even recognizing who my audience was because I didn't even, I didn't properly understand. I didn't need to have over the top fantasy in it. It could still be considered fantasy. Maybe it's a gateway, yeah. a gateway <laughs> book for people <laughs> who's like, I don't read yeah. spec fic. <laughs> yeah, because I think it's, I personally, from also from all the interviews I've done over the years now, just um, it is important to know the audience that you're writing for, you know, because you've got some who write and they're very volatile in their storytelling. They're very volatile on their social media they just they have that and they automatically are going to they're not anywhere near that zero line they're all the way up here at right you know critical level whether it's plus or minus yeah you know but they're critical level there and so you're automatically going to disenfranchise the opposite yes you know so someone who's just they've got to have this nasty guy or he's a he's a good guy but he's got this phallus mouth yeah um and it's just like 
that's who he is. So if you can't have that, then you're not part of my aud- audience. Michael Anderley. You know, he's got that Cutherian gambit. Yeah, oh, I yeah, love oh, her. She, she's amazing. She's the foulest mouth, <laughs> most beautiful with her, with her, you know, oh, Christian she's awesome. uh, yeah. boot and shoes and her, all her fancy handbags. And she's just like, her mouth is just something else. So automatically, and he just says up front, if you got a problem with it, this is not for you. Yeah. And he'll say that. Yeah, no, exactly. You know? Yeah, yeah. But he's got a huge audience, you know. And I had to come to terms with that. I mean, I, I got to a certain point in the series where Michael had to fight some neo-Nazi bad guys. And and I pretty much, you know, have to be very blatant to say, if if you think that there are good neo-Nazis, you're not my reader. <laughs> I'm, I'm, you're not for me. <laughs> if you think there, there, there are good neo-Nazis, then I don't think you and I are going to, you're not going to like my stuff because I call them bad guys. Right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And so, uh, I mean, and, and, and I did lose readers over that. Right. I lost readers really? uh, because of that. And I was like, oh, well, and, and I think that's okay. I put pineapple on this pizza. You don't like pineapple? Cool. There's lots of other pizza out there for you. Go have a good time. You're yeah. not going to enjoy my stuff. And th- and that's okay. Um, I, I'm okay with that. Yeah, I think I think it's you've got to be true to yourself as an author to what to your creative, you know, yeah. bent. But also you need to recognize to who you're writing for and just know that if you're gonna do something, yeah. maybe you'd put it in first in draft one, but when it goes to final yeah. edit. <laughs> Exactly. It's out of there. Well, and that's a great example I learned from a developmental editor with one of the traditional publishers I worked with. So when I was writing Tomes of Terror, uh, haunted bookstores and libraries for for Dundurn Publishing, I'm a book nerd, right? I've just been surrounded by books my whole life. I just, if I could do, change the world in one way, it's that more people discover the magic of reading, right? That's just, I love it. That's part of who I am. Mm-hmm. In the book, uh, so even in one of the chapters, I do a chapters on Haslam's bookstore in St. Pete, Florida, uh, allegedly haunted by uh, the ghost of Jack Kerouac. And when I wrote about Haslam's, it, Haslam's is kind of like the royal family of bookselling in the U.S. It was one of the oldest bookstores in the United States, largest independent, you know, new and used bookstores. And I went into the history of the Haslam family and how they founded the ABA and all these, and I just nerded out like crazy. But my developmental editor came back and said, yeah, this, this, you know, 9,000 word chapter could really be 5,000 words because you just went on and on about the history of bookselling. But I mean, part of telling a good ghost story is, is setting and location and the history, right? You want to get into the history of a location and why that's important to whatever. But then I realized, oh my God, my audience are there for a ghost story. They're not there for the nerding out. Now, now this audience would be ideally people who love ghost stories and book nerds. Right, ideal. That's right. my Venn diagram, right, of the of the of the audiences. But I did learn from the developmental letter. Yeah, I guess I had fun. So in the first draft, I had that. But then we decided what was really cool is like we cut that out. But she allowed me the ability to go and put in sidebars in the chapter, so you could read the chapter, get the ghost story, have fun with the ghosts because that's what you're there for. And then if you're a book nerd like me, there's a sidebar where you could dig into the history of, of the family that created this bookstore and why they're important to American bookselling. Uh, so, so we kind of had the best of both worlds. But that was a perfect example, John, of, of first draft. You get it out. I just got to get it out of my system. It was, it was there my mm-hmm. whole life. And then the development editor's like, yeah, no, <laughs> no, Mark, you can't do that. The audience is expecting this and you went that way. Um, and, and that, that was a really good learning process for me too. That's great. With respect now to aspiring writer and writers of the future, um, cause this is a, a key thing that I really wanted to address here. Yeah. So on writing stories and in developing your craft, developing your name as an author, cause one thing when you win that you're just, you're writing anything and hoping something's going to win. So right. I'm tracking with that, but now you're, you've won. Um, or you've gotten yourself, you're getting yourself published now, you, you're selling short stories, and you're trying to build up a name, you know, uh, so somebody knows you as blah. Um, and we're not talking about somebody who wants to be able to write multiple genres and do the fiction, nonfiction, and I'm doing, because most of what I see you on is horror. When I, when I just, when I look at your um, bibliography, but then we got this urban fantasy as well, which is mostly all you, I know you as is urban fantasy, even though that's yeah. probably a smaller part of, of your bibliography. 
What recommendation do you have for the aspiring writer now on zeroing in and and making sure that when you uh, are found that people are know they're going to find more things like this, that the 20 books to 50K type right. thing that you need to have a bunch of books. So when someone reads one, they're like, what else has he written or what else has she written that they can find it? Yeah, that's a great question, John. So I think, I mean, th- this is really funny and this is probably the case for a lot of my career is don't do what I did. I do write a lot in, in different, now yeah. a, a lot of my writing with the exception of my business of writing and publishing is cross pollination stuff, true ghost stories. I have a series of true ghost stories. I have horror short fiction and uh, I only have one horror novel. I only have one thriller novel. And then this urban fantasy for the most part, there's a bit of crossover there. I I mean, the very first professional sale I had was a science fiction YA story, <laughs> believe it or not. Actually, no, the very first very first story I had was contemporary humor fiction YA. But the right. first professional sale was to Julie Ternada in, a, in an anthology meant for grade four readers, maybe even young readers. Uh, it was a science fiction YA. <laughs> so, okay. I, I, and, and again, I think one of my most popular uh, stories, Snowman Shivers, which is free in ebook format uh, and uh, available in all the other formats as well, is a short, dark humor story about snowmen. And it's often the story I will read in mixed uh, company when there's adults and children. I've read it for grade five and six classrooms because it's a funny story about what would dark humor, funny story. What would happen if Frosty the snowman, if you actually put a hat, the snowman, the snowman came to life, what would actually happen? Would it actually be happy? Would he be happy <laughs> with no legs? He couldn't move like stuff like that. Like, so I, I kind of took a dark humorous look at that. Cause I was just asking people the question. I was really, I was really channeling Mary Shelley, right. That, where, where, right. where the monster says, uh, how dare you create me? Like, how dare you assume the role of God in this? Like, so I was, yeah. was kind of like having that, that with a snowman. Anyways, that, that, that's all that to say is that a lot of my brand and you see the skulls and that started with my very first book, self-published in 2004, One Hand Screaming, which is short, short Twilight Zone kind of stories was the skulls and stuff. And I, and I, and I don't, you know, I'm wearing the shirt with the skulls on it. I've got, there's 36 skulls in the office here. People keep buying and giving them to me. And so that's a lot of part of my brand because, and the reason I do that is when I'm doing a book signing, most of my stuff is speculative in nature. Therefore, if you see the guy sitting there with a the life-size skeleton, you know, one of two things, you either don't make eye contact with the scary looking tall, bald guy, and you run in the opposite direction, or <laughs> you see the skeleton and you're like, Oh, I bet you he writes creepy kind of stuff. I even have a, there's a sign on my door now, but I usually hang it there. It says ghost stories told here. Because it's a great icebreaker, right? So I, I have the skeleton, mm-hmm. I have the sign, and that's to invite people to come in and and talk to me. It gives them an icebreaker, right? Like make a joke about the right. skeleton looks like he could eat something, in which case I say, well, if only I could sell books and then I could afford to buy him a sandwich. Joke, joke, right? It's one of those yeah. things. Or ghost stories. <laughs> tell, tell me a ghost story. So what kind of ghost stories do you like? And then you start a conversation. Um, that, brand, uh, that brand is something that's very, very, very curated. Now, you know me as a speaker and a person and stuff like that. And that's part of the brand is that uh, as a professional, you want to be known as a professional who can deliver manuscripts on time to your publisher, your editor. Sure. You, if, if they, you know, say you accept a story, you, there's a thing you have to get back to them and say, yes, I accept this contract and, and all the, all the negotiations and you want to be a reasonable uh, professional. So that's part of the brand. It doesn't mean that your brand as a writer and a creator can't be, in on brand with genre like maybe you're wearing like a long um you know like a science fictiony kind of thing you you dress like doctor who or 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 whatever the case may be or you or or every once in a while you have just something that's that speaks to the genre that you're right in right like whether right, it's fantasy right, right. science fiction whatever I, I think I think that's okay so long as it's on brand and it's not too far people uh Joanna Penn and I have uh, similar tastes we're known as very optimistic positive uh, professionals in the industry always looking to help people and lift other people up but boy does our stuff get dark when we write right like joe if you've ever read her fiction 
you're like, whoa. And I remember she, the first interview she did with me, she said, oh my God, I read your short story collection. You're dark. <laughs> I never expected that. <laughs> um, but it's okay, right? Because you can see that it's like, I'm, I'm sure Stephen King's a nice guy too, right? <laughs> mm-hmm. I've, I've seen him in interviews. He's very friendly, professional, nice. But you also know where he stands politically too, right? <laughs> so. Yeah, exactly. So we're down to our last few minutes. I just, one thing that I wanted to then throw in here at the end is this whole, because you are very active because you've got your podcast and you do your social and you're, you're very much out there too as, as a speaker. Um, you made that comment about Stephen King is very much known for his political stance. And there's others that know that are very much the opposite side of, of that coin of their political stance about, you know, I guess addressing the point that if you're going to take a stance, religious, political, the sex spectrum, you know, if you, if you take and go vocal on that, what you need to be prepared for? Yeah, it's a great question, John. I think as, and, and, and this, this just stems back to um, technology and AI and all those things. I think that one of the best things we can do is be authentic. Uh, hopefully it's like you're authentic, but you're not a jerk, right? <laughs> ideally. Right. But being <laughs> your authentic self is so important because it's easier to be yourself than it is to pretend to be. Like this persona of mine is not pretend. I like this stuff. It's one aspect of who I am, but it's a true aspect mm-hmm. of who I am because I like reading, sharing ghost stories and spooky stuff. So, but knowing that, and, and I have to accept that. I know that when I have Michael fighting neo-Nazi bad guys, that I am going to, anyone who's a neo-Nazi is not going to like me because I'm calling them the bad guys, right? So right. I've taken right. a stance and I have to accept the fact that there's going to be people who love me more because of that. And there's going to be people who hate me because of that. But it's true to the story I'm telling. It's true to the characters I'm writing about. And I mean, and, and, and whether or not it's true to me, that's beside the point. Cause you know, when you're writing fiction, your job is a storyteller to, to tell whatever stories you want to say, but you're not going to please all the people. If you as a writer attempt to please all the people all the time, you're going to please nobody most of the time. And, That's exactly and, right. and, and that is hard to come to terms with because, you know, as writers, we just want people to love us, right? Oh, please, sir. Here's my manuscript. Please publish it more. Right. <laughs> like you want people to love you. <laughs> like we, we, right. we all have that need to, to be loved and respected and admired, but sometimes you also don't want to put out it. I think we mentioned earlier, you don't want to put out a product that has no flavor at all. Right. It's kind of like, you know, I'm, I'm into craft beer and, and and so I love the idea that with a craft beer, you can really do interesting things and create unique new flavors that are unique and you just can't get out of a standard can of Budweiser, right? Which is a, which is a very consistent, very consistent, right. like a Big Mac. It doesn't matter where you go, it's going to taste the exact same. And, and there are people who love that, but I like to try different things and I want to try different flavors. So when I go somewhere, I want to try a different flavor. So the question you have to ask yourself as a writer, to go back to my other passion, is are you going to be a Bud Light or are you going to be the, the very unique <laughs> beer that some people just think is the best thing on they've ever tasted in their life and other people go, oh my God, that's horrible. <laughs> that's going to happen. Right. But here's the thing you've done. You, as a storyteller, have made people react in a, in a very extreme way, right? Like you've, you've, you've garnered an emotion out of them. And if that's not what storytelling's about, what is it? Good, good. Well, there we go. All right. So my last question is, so for someone to, uh, to find you, how do they go to uh, discover your stories and what do you recommend as, as the uh, primer for Mark Leslie? Okay. So go to marklesley.ca. And regardless of what you read, I bet you you're familiar with what a snowman is, uh, I think. So Snowman Shivers is a story that I think is, it may offend people um, who don't like snowmen. <laughs> 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 uh, but but again, it's one of the stories that, that doesn't have really anything offensive uh, in it. But, and it's sort of a horror story, but it's a family-friendly horror story. that, And it is available free on most platforms. And, uh, okay. and that's something that I think is worth checking out. Because then if you like that, you may get a flavor for my writing style. And uh, this time around is is the very first short story in the Michael Andrews Wolf series. And it is free on most platforms. And there's also a free audiobook version of it on YouTube. So you can check if you're curious to see what. Uh, but just be warned, 
you'll eventually learn that Michael doesn't like neo-Nazis. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> okay. Well, that's great. So I, I definitely recommend that series too. That's the one that got me totally addicted to your, uh, um, to your writing. And so I'm five books into it and I guess there's more coming. So I look forward to those. The next one you said was he's going to get down and dirty as a, as a wolf now. Oh yeah. He's back to a full action adventure with Hex in the city. And there is no Hex in this oh. book. Well, there's Hex, but there's no S-E-X. <laughs> okay. Got it. All righty. Well, thank you very much. And thank you for listening. Subscribe to the Writers of the Future podcast wherever you get your podcasts. We've also been syndicated on the United Public Radio Network, where you can find these podcasts as well. Writers of the Future series can be purchased wherever books are sold in the U.S., Canada, the U.K., Australia, and South Africa, and available everywhere via Amazon.com. We are especially appreciative of our sponsor, Carnation, for supporting this podcast. Carnation has been making delicious milk products for over a century and is still going strong. Writers and Illustrators of the Future are contests created by Elwin Hubbard to provide a means for the aspiring writer and artist to be seen and acknowledged. It is free to enter and open to amateur short story writers and artists of science fiction or fantasy. Again, thank you very much, Mark. Thank you, John. <laughs>